Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're having conversations about how to do good better and faithfully. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Better Samaritan Podcast where my colleague Kent Annan and I invite you to journey alongside with us as we seek to learn how to do good better, whether in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges. I'm Jamie Ayton, and with me today is Dr. Victor Counted to share what he's learned from studying attachment to God and the psychology of place. You're in for a fascinating conversation. Victor is a research psychologist and associate professor in the School of Psychology and Counseling at Regent University. Victor, welcome to the Better Samaritan podcast. Thank you. Well, really happy to be here. Well, I've been looking forward to having a chance to connect with you. And, you know, we've stayed in touch a lot over email and through social media, but it's so great to actually be able to catch up a little more deeply here. So for those of you that may not be familiar with Victor's specific area of research, it's the psychology of religion and places. So now, Victor, you know, when it comes to real estate, we often hear people say that the number one rule is location, location, location. So what on earth does it mean for somebody like yourself to study the psychology of place and specifically within a religious and spiritual context? Yeah, thank you. First of all, I must say I'm really honored to be here, and it's really good to be on this podcast and to talk about some of my work. I think place is very, it's an important construct, often especially as psychologists. We don't often capture it in our research because of the emphasis on the individual. But I think that, you know, life in itself takes place. Almost every experience that we have starts with place. And so I'm very much interested as a psychologist on the interaction that we have with place. And of course, that's a field that called uh, environmental psychology. Most often times what is done in this field is to look at how people interact with place, the relationship, individuals and communities, uh, specifically individuals who have with the place they find themselves. And so over the years, I've sort of been obsessed with the concept of attachment. Actually, I started doing my research in psychology of religion, looking at attachment to God. And over time, I realized that one of the constructs that's not being considered in the conversation, it's our connection to place. And as I was looking into it, I realized there's been a lot of studies that's been done on place attachment as a concept in environmental psychology. Give us kind of an example of that, of what a place attachment might look like or how you would define it in your own words. It's simply the emotional bonds that we have with specific places. And when I say places in this sense, I'm not particularly referring to the physical place. It is a part of that, but there are different dimensions of places that we kind of form attachment to. We have this strong emotional experiences with those particular places, which oftentimes it can be physical place, if you will. It could be, let's say, the beauty of a scenery or the artistics of nature. 
some people might be drawn to a particular place because of that. But also people can be drawn to a place because there is some kind of uh, social activities or there's an engagement, something going on in a place that kind of draws them in. Let's say a festival at a particular place every year that people can wait to travel to, you know, that kind of brings them back. But also there is the cognitive dimension where people form attachment to a place that helps them to forge their self-concept or their identity. For example, people that are living, let's say, in Jerusalem or in Israel might have a unique attachment to that place because it has a lot to do with their identity. And even when you the place is at risk, they probably wouldn't want to move because of their strong connection to that place. And so I'm very much interested in how we form attachment to these different dimensions of place, not just the physical place, but also the social activities in a place that draw us in, and also some cognitive aspects of place that allows us to forge our identity. You know, and these are the things that people, and in that, you find the memories and also the experiences that really make a place unique in a sense. So it's kind of multidimensional. Mm-hmm. And that's been my approach to looking at it over the years. And so one of the things that's really fascinating me about the research that you do is that you also look at these issues of attachment in place, but also within a religious context. Could you share some about yes. what that work has looked like and what are maybe a couple of key findings? Yeah. So recently, I think it was in 2019, 2016, 2017, 2019, I started to play around with the concept because I found that in the field of psychology of religion, we were doing a lot of research on attachment to God and spiritual attachment. And in environmental psychology, there was also a group doing research on place attachment. And I was like, why is it that these two unique fields haven't really merged? And that was where my work and interest started. I remember I traveled to Rome, I think in 2018, so I was invited to talk about place attachment and spirituality in a group where you had a lot of environmental psychologists and people that are doing research on place. And I remember introducing the concept of attachment to God, and most of them have never heard it. And uh, couldn't imagine that there could be a fusion. <laughs> and the same thing has also happened whenever I talk about place attachment within the psychology of religion circle. And so it's interesting. So I thought that's a work to be done there. And I started off conceptualizing it as a place spirituality. And essentially what I was trying to say was that the attachment that we form at specific places might actually shape the way that we experience our fate. Hmm. But then over time, recently, myself and some colleagues, we tried to clarify the construct and we've called it spiritual ties to place. Hmm. And the spiritual ties to place, the argument is still the same. But Overall, what we're saying is that this attachment happens across three dimensions using the same similar ABC pattern and and framework that we used previously. And essentially, the argument was that people, we the attachment to place or rather the spiritual ties to place happens first uh, when there's a need to when we find the sacred in a place and finding the sacred in a place could be, let's say, for example, you're out in nature and you have some kind of unique experience that you could conceptualize as being as spiritual. 
or you're in a particular place that kind of says something sacred in you, or you have uh, some kind of transcendent connection in that place. But secondly, the second other dimension is the social activities in sacred places. And this social activities in sacred places is another way that we form our spiritual ties to place. And this often have to do with the activities, let's say, in a church context, mm-hmm. right? In the church building, during worship, and that community, that sense of community there, most people form the spiritual ties to place because of those kind of social activities. And you can also find this social activity, let's say, when you're going on a pilgrimage, it brings everybody together, that particular sacred place. But the third dimension of spiritual tie to place, which we've tried to conceptualize and actually develop a measure for, it's the spiritual realities in a place. Now, with the spiritual realities in a place, it doesn't have to be with a physical place in particular. Mm-hmm. It can happen at your home. A lot of people would have had this unique experience where during the pandemic when they were in lockdown (laughs) and there were a lot of questions around meaning and you know what is the purpose of life you've been in lockdown for a number of years in australia we were in lockdown for almost about a year and most people would be having those spiritual realities questions around meaning and just trying to make sense out of life right and those kind of questions and realities happens in a place context. So that's how I'm trying to look at it and hopefully measure that across different cultures and see how this different unique dimension kind of shape uh, human flourishing. Well, as you know, that uh, one of my main interests is looking at issues around disasters and mass traumas and humanitarian crises. And when we mm. kind of just step back and look around the globe, you know, we see people being displaced from their homes, you know, from right. places all over at right. rates that we've not seen historically. How right. might some of these things from whether it's a natural disaster or a refugee crisis and or war, whatever it may be, what mm. sort of impact does place have on our spirituality, on our faith? That's a good question. And so because of my interest in place, it's one thing for us to form attachment to place, have a place attachment. But the question that's not often asked is what happens when our connections and attachment to places or to a particular place is disrupted? Mm -hmm. And I've called that place attachment disruption. And largely, I was drawing from the work that's been done on attachment theory, on the attachment disruption, and just to understand what place attachment disruption might look like. And uh, my conceptualization of this is that it's really a distressing experience that kind of arises from the threat of losing one's relationship with an object of attachment. Now, in this case, it is place, right? And when we lose our relationship with a particular place that we have a connection with, let's say our community due to a natural disaster or something, and the disruptive forces of life can either be man-made or it could be, you know, as a result of a natural disaster. And when that happens, we tend to respond in three ways. We tend to either first protest And we saw that during the pandemic when most people were locked down, were in lockdown and were in confinement. 
And you find people, they were not happy about that. And the first reaction was they were protesting because somehow their connection to their cities and the places mm-hmm. that they were familiar to, their workplaces, had been disrupted. And as a result of that, the protest is the first phase. But oftentimes, and really protest, it's sort of, it's an expression of disapproval mm-hmm. over the threat of losing our relationship with a particular object of attachment. And so you find for most people that disapproval can come as verbal disapproval or maybe commenting on Facebook or, you know, having a blast online, generally just expressing that you are not happy about what's happening. But oftentimes when people express those signals, those protest signals, and it's not being addressed, there's a tendency for that to escalate to despair. Despair is the second phase of attachment disruption based on the work that's been done by John Balby. And this phase, oftentimes the despair phase, there is a sense that the individual has lost, has lost that connection they have with that object, uh, whether it's with a place. And as a result of that, again, depending on, I think, the internal working model of the person, they might respond in a different way. They might respond by being a bit more hostile. They might respond by becoming depressed. You know, depressive symptoms can also be one of the symptoms of this particular phase because it's a phase of hopelessness. And when this happens due to the negative thoughts, there's a tendency for them to adapt maladaptive behaviors as a way of dealing with this. Now, I think it's possible that this might not go simultaneously as I've talked about it. Mm-hmm. For some people, they can experience protests. And after that experience, because they have what is the right coping mechanism or the right kind of protective resources, they can bounce back better, you know, or rather form on one hand, if their protest signals are addressed, there's a tendency that they will crawl back to a better state. But also, it's also possible that for most people that experience protests, they can also experience detachment, which is the thought phase. They don't need to go through the despair phase. For some people, they can go through the despair phase, especially if they have an insecure attachment model. And at the despair phase, what happens, this is where people try to explore new relationships or new experiences after they've gone through an experience of uh, place attachment disruption. And at that point, they can find ways to forge new relationships, let's say with new communities or a different attachment figure. At this phase, I kind of propose that this might be a good place where we introduce fate and the relationship with God with such people if they already don't have one, or maybe a way of really reconfiguring their understanding of their relationship with God. You know, that's a work to be done there anyway, but it's not something the person can do on their own. And so this is how I look at the intersection between place attachment, spirituality, and maybe flourishing in itself, because it's not just one thing. It's a process. And understanding this process, the litany of experiences that people have can kind of help us to frame an understanding around what recovery might look like for communities and even for individuals that might be experiencing place attachment disruption.
Well, so with that place detachment, attachment disruption, let's use that mm. example that you gave about COVID-19, that there was yes. a long stretch where many people weren't able to attend their congregation or church in person. And yes. as people have started returning to church, we see some that are and some that aren't. And that there has definitely been a disruption in the church pews for right. many congregations. How can some of the kind of big lessons from your research help us to better understand what may be happening now as we kind of mm. enter this next phase of post-COVID-19? Mm. That's an interesting question that I haven't actually talked about deeply, but I can give a go at it and see how I go <laughs> addressing it, you know. Yeah, because I think, and also you find that, especially in churches, you find a protest among most Christians who were denied access to their places of worship, right? Mm -hmm. And for most people, it's very possible, this is me trying to conceptualize, that for those people, because they were locked out of their place of worship for a long time, they lost that connection they had for that place and they lost the connection. And in that process, they sort of might have experienced a detachment phase where they found a substitute object of attachment, hmm. a substitute sacred place, whether it's their home. And that's why you find a lot of people, they're more comfortable worshiping, joining the service from the comfort of their home and going back to church is no longer that option for them. That's one way to look at this. On the other hand, it's also possible that that same group of people who had protested and maybe uh, they were not attending to, it wasn't addressed, and now they've forged, uh, they've detached from the church community and now experiencing a different relationship with a different community, maybe with an online community or with something. I know, for example, Around COVID time, there were a lot of people that went into, a lot of young ministers, youth pastors, that now went into the online community and started YouTubing, started uh, podcasting because th there was a boom in that space, right? And now it's their community and also a sense for them that they can actually reach out and still do ministries, mm -hmm. ministries on those platforms, right? And you find that the detachment can happen in different ways. And it would definitely have practical consequences for the church, right? But I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of work to be done around how to, I guess, bring people back to the physical place, the, the churches, the, the physical churches itself. Although on the other hand, some theologians would argue that church is not necessarily a, a building, right? So right, right. those are the conversations that we could keep having around what that would look like and how can we help people to come back to church, which I think is definitely a challenging problem now for most pastors. Well, you know, when I was an undergrad, my honors thesis for my senior thesis that I did was looking at uh, environmental psychology and specifically looking at some of the differences between a couple of different major retail stores. So I wanted to understand, mm -hmm. you know, how does the physical environment of, say, Target versus Walmart impact right. those who are shopping? And as you know, you know, some brief indicators of uh, stress, for example, right, is lack of eye contact and, you know, speed of gait, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I yeah. spent several days camped out in the front of a Target and a Walmart there in the little benches and had a newspaper up. And as people were going by, I was keeping track of, you know, it was pretty, uh, just a very, very basic study. And, you know, keeping track of how many people I was making eye contact with, 
you know, people's mm-hmm. gate, that sort of thing and taking notes in my paper. Right. And then right. after about a half an hour or so on the second day in Walmart, the manager comes up to me and says, what are you doing here? We've been getting complaints about this weird guy staring at everybody walking through our doors. And so I turned my mm. paper around. I tried to show him that I'm doing research. And I think he thought that I maybe wasn't uh, completely stable and asked me <laughs> to leave. So I never got to finish that particular project. So I ended right. up doing the actual project later on the environmental impact of noise and how that impacts our experience of nature. But mm. that's a boring story. So I, I won't go into that. So the reason why I brought that up is that, you know, we do know from research that the Mm -hmm. physical and built environment can impact, you know, our mood, our different experiences. So what are Mm -hmm. maybe some tips that you could draw from your work that you could offer churches to be able to make churches more welcoming in a way that would also Mm -hmm. foster uh, and help deepen faith? Mm. That's a good question. I wish I have the answers. If I do, I'll <laughs> but yeah, I can only give a reflection on what I think that we could do as a church. There's this uh, concept that one of my colleagues that I've worked with, I think you know her, Laura Kaptari, mm-hmm. was playing around with, she called it embodied cognition, right? Mm-hmm. And I like the application of the framework because I started to toil around the concept of ecotherapy. And ecotherapy, really, it's simply a way a therapist can use the environment as part of their therapeutic tool, right? Mm-hmm. And you could use that effectively to help people deal with an experience of place attachment disruption, to help them repair the disruption that they've had. Now, bringing that to the church context, what would that look like, right? How can we create practices that can help people that might have been out of church, practices that can stimulate a new connection to the experience of the church or a new connection to the church itself, to our churches. How can we, because I think there's a role that we might have to play in this process where we work hand in hand with people to reestablish or repair those connections, right? Mm. And I think some of the work within the embodied cognition might help to kind of give a bit of an insight. I think it involves about four processes. One is, I think, embodied connection, uh, practices that sort of stimulate the connection to new experiences. The other is, I think, embodied regulation, which is sort of engaging the body to kind of alter vulnerability to physical and mental health, I think. The other also, it's embodied uh, meaning, where we kind of engage our senses in creative thinking and meaning-making activities, and the other one is action. And I think that we could find ways to create a model that would work as a church, Mm -hmm. where we help people to make sense of all these processes so that when they return back to church, there are activities that would enable them to reestablish that connection that's been lost, make meaning in the process, you know, by engaging their themselves in meaning-making activities in the church, and also participate in an action that will help them to sort of strive for autonomy, you know, and get their self-agency amidst the despair that they might have felt. And there's not one answer to this, really. Mm-hmm. I think 
you're already doing an incredible work with the spiritual first aid project, which I think it's a good way. It's one of the practical ways that we could start having this conversation and merely talking about it as a good way to start, really. Yeah. And what I really appreciate about the perspective that you shared there was that it really engages all of who we are, right? You know, yes. All yes, essentially. And what was that book by Richard Foster? Streaming Living Water? I can't remember the exact name of the, the book, mm. but he talks about the different Christian spiritual formation models and out of different traditions and how oftentimes we go through our faith life where in some yeah. ways we almost have a flat tire. You know, Maybe we have mm. one part of our spiritual formation well-developed, but another part that is kind of struggling a bit. So I, I like that because I know I've seen that sometimes too with churches where right. they're only really kind of engaging one part of who we are. So I think that's some wise advice there. Yeah, and we can even find ways to do those things and help people to achieve that and help the people cultivate whether it's the practices of connection, whether it's help them to sort of maybe the church can serve as a space for metabolizing despair, right? Mm -hmm. And even the hopelessness of loss itself, because most people have experienced incredible loss at this time. By doing that, we can help people to also cultivate that self-agency and control in the face of whatever challenging situation that they might have faced. So I do think we do, as a church, have a role to play, but also recognizing that that's a problem and understanding what might have happened would help us to kind of, you know, start uh, the movement towards returning people back to church. Yeah. And, you know, as you were sharing some of your insights there, Victor, that it also, for me, made me think about what it means to have a trauma-informed spaces as well. And, mm. you know, Oftentimes, I think when people think about trauma-related issues, you know, they're only focusing maybe on the emotional or the psychological side. Right. But as you were talking, you know, I think your research also has a lot to contribute to what does it mean to be a trauma-informed church and how do we create safe spaces and environments and make them welcoming to others? Well, Victor, as we come to the end of our time here on the podcast, just wondered you know, what would be that kind of one takeaway that you would hope listeners would have from your research? Like, what's that one thing that you would like others to know in terms of kind of a key takeaway from your research on the psychology of place and attachment? Yeah, I think maybe I might have the freedom of talking in a way that it's kind of very generalistic in a sense, just to say that we all have um, spiritual ties to place. And I think it's important to recognize at which dimensions that we are or which dimensions of our ties to place are deficit, right? And find ways to kind of enrich that. Because if we are going to, if we take care of the different connections that we have with the places that we find ourselves, who knows, it might be the pathway to our flourishing. And not knowing that that is there, could be a hindrance to whether it's our spiritual growth or even our, our flourishing or really becoming all that God wants us to be and living the abundant life, which I think, by the way, it's a way of looking at Christian flourishing. Hmm. Well, for listeners who would like to find out more about your work and research, where could they go to find out more? So I think at my university website, at Regent University, or maybe my personal website, vcounted.com. But also, and, I'm pretty much open to other platforms as well, like the social media platforms on Twitter and Facebook, with I think my handle is vcounted. 
Great. Well, and I know that's one of the places that we often connect is there on Twitter. I know. <laughs> so hopefully others will follow and join the conversation and we'll be sure to put some of that information in our show notes. So Victor, thank you so much for taking time today and for sharing with us. Thank you, Jamie. It's been a pleasure being here. In closing, thank you for listening to the Better Samaritan podcast. Be sure to check out our show notes for helpful links and resources. And as always, feel free to email us with your questions or comments at hdi at wheaton.edu. We look forward to being with you again soon as we continue together on this journey of learning to do good better. Tell, tell.